Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Welcome to Law for Virginia Law Enforcement Officers. Uh, this is a podcast for those of you out there who are trying to do it right. Law enforcement officers in Virginia who want to follow the law, who want to know what constitutional law demands, what statutory law demands, how can you better strengthen and serve your communities. We took a little break for the Thanksgiving holiday, and uh, but now we're back. We're talking about new cases. The special session is over. We gave you some podcast updates and so on on that. Um, so now we have a break until the regular session starts. The General Assembly is coming right back into session starting the beginning of January, and I think we should expect to see more bills on criminal justice, more bills on police reform, even though the special session's goal was to cover those topics. I don't think they're done uh, getting their hands into statute, statutes about you know new crimes or changing criminal procedure, changing police procedure, and so on. So we should expect that to come, uh, and we will keep you updated on that as well. But for the next few podcast episodes, uh, we'll stay focused on new cases from the various courts of appeals. And this week, I want to talk about a couple of new cases on Miranda and the Fifth Amendment. There were two really interesting cases that came out of the Court of Appeals in the last couple of weeks on uh, Fifth Amendment Miranda issues. One is Stevenson versus Commonwealth, which is a case out of Hampton. And the other is a case called Thomas versus Commonwealth, which is out of Richmond. And both of them highlight important issues that I think all law enforcement needs to be focused on when we're thinking about Miranda. So the first case I'm going to talk about is the Stevenson case. And this is a case, uh, this is an unpublished opinion from the Court of Appeals from November 24th. And again, it's out of Hampton. It's a case where the defendant um, shot into shot, shot a bunch of people at a restaurant parking lot in a vehicle. Uh, he himself was wounded in the gunfire exchange, and he went to the hospital. Police figured out when he went to the hospital, the hospital obviously notified police. They had a gunshot wound victim, and police responded. It's important to know when the police responded there, they really didn't know whether he was a victim, whether he was a suspect, what the situation was. So when they talked to him, they were really just kind of trying to figure out, you know, what's what's going on here? What, what's the situation? So when they were talking to him, he's being treated by medical staff. He wasn't being restrained. He wasn't told he was under arrest. He wasn't told he was free to leave, but he wasn't told he wasn't free to leave either. Um, when hospital personnel would come in and treat him, the officers would step out. When they would leave, they would officer, officers would come back in. Um, but among the officers, there was also a family member. A family member came in and sat with the defendant at the same time. So you can imagine this is a hospital setting. This isn't a police setting. Um, the officers have identified themselves, but they've talked to him and they're trying to figure out what happened in this shooting. He initially claims that he'd been shot in Newport News, but the officers say, look, we know that's not what happened. We knew that you were at this restaurant in Hampton. Um, he, they asked him if he would take a lie detector test. Um, he, they uh, asked him if he would take a GSR test and he agreed to that. So for the GSR test, they did ask everybody to leave the room. They took the GSR test, but later the officers explained they would have done that whether he was a suspect or a victim. He made some statements, uh, officers investigated, left and continued to investigate, ultimately determined that he was the perpetrator and uh, obtained a warrant for his arrest. So prior to trial, he moved to suppress his statements, and he argued that he was in custody when the officer spoke to him in the hospital. But the trial court denied that motion to suppress, and the Court of Appeals affirmed. They concluded that a reasonable person in the defendant's position during that interview would have understood that his freedom wasn't restricted to a degree associated with formal arrest, and therefore he was not in custody. 
So because he wasn't in custody, there was no need to provide Miranda because, of course, you only provide Miranda in a situation of custodial interrogation. Here, the, the court says even as the officers started to figure out this was likely the perpetrator of the offense, the fact that an investigation, investigation has become accusatory and focused on a suspect is not necessarily determinative of custody. Instead, what the court did was they applied six factors under a case called WAS versus Commonwealth. And these are good factors to kind of think about when you imagine, is the situation custody or is it not? You look at, for example, under WAS, uh, number one, the manner in which the individual was summoned by the police. Here, he wasn't summoned by the police at all. The officers went to him, and the surrounding was of one that he chose because he went to the hospital. The police didn't put him in the hospital. The second is the familiarity or the neutrality of the surroundings. Here, this, the, the surroundings weren't familiar, but they were certainly neutral. This wasn't a police setting or a police-controlled setting. Indeed, when the hospital staff came in the room, the police would have to leave. The third WAS factor is the number of officers present. So here there were a number of officers. There were some officers in the hallway. There was a couple of officers in the room during the interview. But again, it's not an overwhelming number, especially considering how many, he had a family member there, there were other hospital personnel, and so on. Wasp, Wasp also asks in uh, factor four to look at the degree of physical restraint. So here the defendant is obviously hooked up to machines and uh, all that kind of stuff, but he's not being physically restrained by law enforcement. And his overall physical restraint is not high because he voluntarily asked to go to the hospital. It's he who decided to go there. Was also says, look at the duration and character of the interrogation. Here the interrogation isn't very long, um, and the character of it is certainly a little bit accusatory, but it's again a situation where that doesn't overwhelm the voluntariness of the situation. And lastly, under WAS, you look at the extent to which the officer's beliefs concerning the potential culpability of the individual being questioned were manifested to the individual. If they had walked in and said, hey, WAS, we're here because you shot these people in a car and you're going to jail. You need to tell us what happened to make it easy on yourself. That's going to make the defendant, a reasonable person in the defendant's situation, think they're in custody, right? Here they walk in, they have no idea what happened. And they're like, hey, can you just tell us what happened? We're trying to figure this out. And so they certainly at some point say, hey, look, your story doesn't match up with the facts. We don't think that what you're telling us is accurate. But that level of accusatoriness doesn't overwhelm, that uh, doesn't turn the situation into custody here. Uh, so ultimately, in this case, the court finds <clears throat> the defendant is not in custody and Miranda is not necessary. It's important to note, though, that hospital settings are sometimes complicated, especially when the defendant is under the influence of some kind of drug. And you often see a situation where defendants will move to suppress their statements, not because they are made in violation of Miranda, right? Miranda says that <clears throat> if a person is subject to custodial interrogation, officers need to read them certain warnings which, with, with which we're all familiar. But Miranda, excuse me, the Fifth Amendment also requires that whatever statements that law enforcement obtain from a suspect be obtained voluntarily, right? Because the Fifth Amendment doesn't say that all persons shall be told that they have a right to remain silent, that anything they say can will be against court law, they have a right to an attorney, if they can't afford an attorney, won't be appointed to represent them, they can stop answering questions at any time. That's not what the Fifth Amendment says, right? The Fifth Amendment says that no person shall be compelled to provide, to be witness against themselves, provide testimony against themselves. 
So <clears throat> the Fifth Amendment is concerned with compelled statements, right? So before we even had Miranda, we had a lot of cases about from the Supreme Court and elsewhere about whether or not police were compelling people to talk. Even if you read someone the Miranda warnings, that doesn't allow you to compel that person, to beat that person into talking, or to otherwise coerce that person into talking. For example, by saying, if you don't tell us uh, what happened, then CPS is going to come and take your children away, right? That would be compelling somebody to talk. The fact that you give them Miranda warnings doesn't fix that. <clears throat> so in the hospital setting, what you have sometimes then is a situation where somebody is under the influence of drugs. Um, and they might argue uh, that police used, took advantage of that to get them to talk. And certainly a combination of drugs, alcohol, and pain can be enough to make a statement involuntary. That's sort of just true in general. So even if Miranda warnings are given, a confession is involuntary if it's product of an overborn will. But there has to be some police compulsion in those cases. And so the test becomes whether by means of the intoxication or of the, the person's uh, diminished will, the defendant's will was overborne uh, by law enforcement and the statements are not the product of a rational mind and free will. Police coercion somehow caused this person to make statements. And that's something you just want to watch out for when you're dealing with a suspect who is intoxicated. You don't want to use coercive tactics to take advantage of that situation, even when a person isn't in custody. The second case I want to talk about today is Thomas versus Commonwealth. And this is a case out of Richmond. Uh, it's a murder case where the defendant and his buddy kill, shot and killed someone during a robbery. Police detained the defendant. He certainly was in custody. They read him Miranda. And after a few minutes, the defendant stated, I'm going to stop talking. Um, at that point, the officers recognized that he was probably invoking his right to remain silent. And at that point, they stood up and they moved away from the interview the interview table. They, they get ready to terminate the interview. As they did, though, the officers turned to him and they said, hey, listen to me. Do we treat you right? You know, we gave you every opportunity to talk, didn't we? Isn't that fair? Um, you know, I just I want to make sure that we're clear. You know, you made your decision not to talk. That's fair. But I just want to, you know, we gave you a chance to talk, right? You were buddies, right? You know, we're basically friends here, right? It's just a job. This isn't personal. Shake my hand, all right? Just, we agree. This isn't personal. We did our job. We gave you a chance to talk. Fair enough, right? Shake my hand. The defendant didn't respond. He didn't shake the officer's hand. And so at that point, the officers uh, get ready to leave the room. The one officer turns to the other officer and says, hey, what are the charges? And the other officer responds, do you know, to the defendant, do you know what the charges are against you? And the defendant, again, doesn't respond. And so the officer says, well, you're looking at robbery, use of a firearm, first-degree murder, and use of a firearm. Um, do you know what the penalties are for those offenses? And again, the defendant didn't respond. And they said, if you want me to explain it, I'll tell you what the penalties are. At that point, the defendant nodded, and the officers stated what the penalties were. And the, the officers then said, and at the end of the proceeding, uh, the jury, if the jury sentences you, you're looking at, you know, well, you're 20 years old. Um, so, you know, you're, you're looking at potentially a significant sentence, unlike your friend who's going to catch a break. Since he, your friend who's 17 is going to catch a break. At that point, then, the defendant, who hasn't said anything, right, because remember he said, I'm going to stop talking, and he never says another word at all. Uh, that whole exchange I told you about, the shaking hands thing, the penalties, even when he nods his head, he doesn't say anything. But now, when the officers say, 
that uh, the other the young man is 17, he's going to catch a break. It's at that point that the defendant speaks up and he says, how come he's going to catch a break? Is it because he's a juvenile? And the officers reply, well, he talked. He got the story. You don't think he should get he should get that much of a break? And this then starts a conversation with the defendant where he ultimately admits to his involvement with the crime. The Again, at, before trial, the defendant moves to suppress the statements. Here, there's no question he's in custody. There's no question he's been read, read Miranda. The question is, did the officers respect his invocation of the right to remain silent? Right, so remember... When a suspect imposes, the, excuse me, invokes their right to remain silent, police are prohibited from interrogating that person further unless they voluntarily reinitiate questioning. Police could also interrogate the person further if a significant period of time passes, uh, but there you have to be careful because you have to go back and talk about a different offense. It's, it's complicated. I would talk to your prosecutor before you ever do anything like that because it can be done right, it can be done wrong, and it's a little complicated. So. Here, um, the question is, and the court assumes that he invokes his right to remain silent, which is interesting. I mean, the statement, I'm going to stop talking now, or uh, what he says, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop talking, he just says, that may or may not be an invocation of right to remain silent. You know, that's something the court doesn't decide. Here, the officers treat it like it's a right to remain silent invocation. And so the court treats it the same way the officers do. The question the courts ask is, did the officers... Uh, respect that were they were the conversation they had with the with the suspect still proper did they respect that and then did the de- defendant on his own reinitiate the conversation in this case the court concludes the defendant was not compelled by the police he was not subject to the type type, type of police conduct that would compel a reasonable person to incriminate themselves and his voluntary communication with the police demonstrated a knowing, intelligent, and voluntary waiver of his previously invoked right to remain silent. So the question here is, why was it okay for the officers to have this conversation with the defendant? Well, remember, Miranda covers custodial interrogation. If a person invokes their right to remain silent, or if they invoke the right to an attorney, all questioning, all interrogation must cease. That doesn't mean you're not allowed to talk to the person at all. It simply means you're not allowed to interrogate them. That is, you're not allowed to ask them a question that's reasonably likely to elicit an incriminating response. But there's still all kinds of things that you would potentially say to a suspect who's in custody, like, uh, you know, okay, would you please stand up and turn around and put your hands behind your back? Uh, Do you want a glass of water? Do you need to call anybody? Um, You'd explain to them, okay, we're going to see the magistrate now. We're going to take you to jail now. you know, that kind of thing. Do you have a, you know, do you, um, you know, do you need shoes? That kind of thing. You know, simple questions, right? You're allowed to ask these questions. If they're not reasonably likely to incriminate, to elicit an incriminating response, then they are proper. Here in this case, the court said officers telling a suspect about what the penalties, potential penalties are for a crime, that's not reasonably going to call for an incriminating response. So it's proper. In fact, it's normal procedure to tell a person what the potential charges they're facing are and what the potential penalties are. And the statements in this case about the co-defendant, the court found, were not coercive or deceitful. And so the defendant then on his own, instead of remaining silent, he reopened the conversation with the officers by asking why his co-defendant would receive a lesser sentence potentially and inquiring if it was because the defendant, his co-defendant was a juvenile. 
and the officers are then responding to his question, is my co-defendant, is my, is my fellow suspect going to re- receive a lower sentence because he's a juvenile? Uh, they're doing so after he's, you know, they're answering that question and then he's waiving his right to remain silent with his voluntary verbal interactions with the detectives. So it brings up an interesting issue that I want to kind of talk about a little bit, and that is, you know, what are the bounds of what is and isn't interrogation? You'll have a lot of suspects who will intelligently invoke their right to remain silent or intelligently invoke their right to an attorney, and yet, nevertheless, you're still going to talk to them, but you can't interrogate them anymore. So what's the difference, right? Well, I mentioned that it, obviously interrogation is questioning, but it's also its functional equivalent. So the functional equivalent of questioning is words or actions by a police officer that the officer knows or should know is reasonably likely to elicit an incriminating answer from the suspect. And so that's mostly an objective kind of question. We can usually answer that because we're answering that in the perspective of a reasonable person. Um, But there is a certain component here where officers, you, you would ask whether officers are taking advantage of a particular suspect's uh, lack of knowledge or their susceptibility to the words or actions. Um, and so, for example, Brewer versus Williams is a famous case where officers are um, transporting. Now, the suspect has killed a child. It's a, it's a little six, seven-year-old girl, six-year-old girl. Um, they can't find her body. They don't know where her body is. They suspect he's deposited her somewhere in the in the woods. Um, it's a huge, you know, huge area in the Midwest where, you know, you're not going to find her body very easily. Um, so they decide they're going to transport him. So two detectives get uh, the defendant uh, into the vehicle. They start transporting him. They know he's a deeply religious individual. So they start talking about Christmas and about how um, how difficult it must be in the holidays to for the parents to know that the child isn't getting a proper Christian burial. And they start talking back and forth, the detectives back and forth with one another, looking out in the woods, saying, there she is out there, you know. Um, she hasn't been properly laid to rest, the animals can get to her, and so on. And the suspect in the back says, okay, look, fine, I'll tell you where she is. And the court finds in that case, the U.S. Supreme Court finds in that case, that that was the functional equivalent of, of, of questioning. The officers were taking advantage. They knew perfectly well that a defendant was susceptible to a religious compulsion. They're trying to get the defendant to talk. They're trying to convince him to talk. That's the purpose of the little speech that, they're, that they've prepared, the conversation that they've had back and forth. And so that was interrogation, even though they never ask him a single question. Um, another interesting case on this is Rhode Island versus Innes. And it's a case where, again, it's a it's a murder. Uh, here's a murder and a robbery committed by a guy using a sawed-off shotgun. They capture Innes, but they don't find the gun. The gun is missing somewhere. So this is Rhode Island. This is a heavily populated area. So they advise Miranda. Uh, they advise Miranda. He um, uh, take him in the vehicle. He invokes. They take him in a vehicle. They're transporting him and. Now, instead of talking about the Christian burial, the officers have a conversation with each other about how, wow, you know, look at this, there's a handicapped school, there's a lot of handicapped kids playing nearby. Um, You know, God forbid one of them would find that weapon, find that sawed-off shotgun, there'd be shells, Um, they might hurt themselves, there might be an accident, it'd be too bad if some little girl picked up the gun and shot, killed herself, killed somebody else. At that point, Innes speaks up, and, uh, and tells the location of the sawed-off shotgun. And here again, 
the court says, you know, the court looks at this and very similar to Brewer versus Williams here, right? Um, the court says Miranda, the safeguards apply anytime a person in custody is subjected to either express questioning or its functional equivalent. And so here again, any statement that's reasonably likely to elicit an incriminating response um, is going to be uh, interrogation. Now, you can't foresee an unforeseeable result of your words. Um, so, you know, for example, if you, you know, say to somebody, um, hey, look, do you want me to call your mother to tell her that you're, you know, under arrest? And suddenly that triggers the suspect to think, oh my God, my mother, how am I ever going to explain this to her? Oh my God, mama, I'm so sorry. I can't believe I killed him. You know, you didn't expect, that's not foreseeable that somebody would do that. Um, but, uh, you know, here in this particular case, what's interesting is the court looks at this conversation between the two officers and they find that these off, that this was not the functional equivalent of, uh, of questioning between the two officers talking about finding the shotgun, which is really interesting, I think, comparing it to Brewer versus Williams, where the Christian burial speech they find, it was likely to elicit an incriminating response. Um, and here, you know, maybe it's because it wasn't so maudlin, it wasn't so rehearsed, it wasn't so obviously an attempt to overbear the defendant, defendant's will. Um, in this case, there wasn't anything particular about the defendant that made him speak up. I and mean, was the defendant in Brewer versus Williams was highly religious. In uh, Rhode Island versus Innis, there's nothing about him that would indicate that, you know, he would suddenly be uh, willing to be concerned about uh, a child shooting themselves. Um, so it's just interesting that those two cases turn out differently. Um, the court in Rhode Island versus Innis says that the officer's comments struck a responsive chord is readily apparent. So, you know, certainly he was subjected to some kind of subtle compulsion. But here, the suspect's incriminating response has to be the product of words or actions that they knew or should have known were reasonably likely to elicit an incriminating response. And so the compulsion has to be something above and beyond simply custody. It's something the officers are doing to compel the statement. So... You know, how does that apply in Virginia? How have we applied it? There's a, you know, there's a case called Commonwealth versus Quarles. And in Quarles, the office, the defendant uh, invokes his Miranda rights. And the officer says, that's fine. If he doesn't want to talk to me, great. I don't care. I wasn't the person that robbed this white lady and hit her in the head with a brick. Um, after hearing that remark, the defendant confesses and the Virginia Supreme Court says, well, here again, it's not likely to elicit an incriminating response. He's not making some kind of implicit request for information. He's not calling for a response. The officer's not even, uh, you know, saying here's more information that I want. He's simply expressing anger. I'm not the one that hit this woman over the head with a brick. Um, I'm not the one who robbed her. Fine. I don't care if you don't want to talk to me and walks out. And so, uh, again, the court found that that wasn't the, the, the functional equivalent of interrogation. You know, at that point, anything the defendant says is kind of a spontaneous utterance, right? He just sort of speaks up and says something. Um, and that's not interrogation at all. It's the defendant talking. And then if he does so, you can then, of course, follow it up with questions if you've already provided the Miranda warnings. The last thing I want to mention, too, here is there's a lot of questions, and there is truly questions, I mean, questions that call for a response, um, that get asked in any arrest whether the person has been read Miranda or not. And those are what we typically call routine booking questions. What's your name? What's your address? Do you have a job? That kind of thing. 
Um, interrogation, by definition, doesn't include those routine victim questions, name, age, height, weight, even though you might ultimately use those statements to prosecute the defendant, right? So I mean, you think, for example, if a defendant's using a false identity or given a false name before, you're going to ask him what his name is. Uh, and that ultimately, his statement of what his name is, is, is part of the evidence that's going to be used to prosecute him. But if they're routine booking questions, then uh, there's no requirement that you read Miranda because they're not interrogation. They're just simply, you know, sort of questions that you would ask of any suspect. Um, think about when you, you ask them to sign a fingerprint card. Uh, this is my fingerprints. You, they are affirming that this is their fingerprints. That's going to be used against them potentially if you found fingerprints before that match that suspect. But it's a routine uh, booking question and therefore is it does not require Miranda at all. No Miranda warnings. Or, you know, again, if the person's invoked the right to remain silent, invoked the right to an attorney, you can still go through that process. Um, so that's really interesting, I think, because if you think about it, there's a lot of things that come through the booking process that are potentially incriminating, not just name, not just signing your fingerprint card, but think about a defendant who makes a statement about whether they're employed. Do you always ask defendants as part of the booking process whether they're employed? Um, the magistrate usually does, right, when they're making a bond decision. Well, whether a defendant is employed, that can be very useful information, not just sort of, you know, if I'm trying to prove that he's an embezzled, you know, he embezzled and therefore he was in a position of trust. But think about, you know, a drug dealer. If you've arrested a drug dealer and he's got $10,000 in cash in his possession and he says he has no job and that he's never had a job or he hasn't had a job in years, well, that's incriminating information. If it's a routine booking question, though, it's potentially still admissible information in court uh, and very powerful information in court. Think also about the kinds of booking questions that maybe you don't ask, but the questions that the jail asks when somebody is booked in. They ask a lot of questions, very personal questions, that again can be potentially very useful. Think about a defendant where you found, you know, let's say you found a, an eight ball of crack cocaine in their possession, right? Well, an eight ball of crack cocaine is right on that border between personal use and a distribution amount, right? And so you're certainly going to have a defendant who's going to argue that was for personal use at trial. And you're going to have to argue, no, that's a, that's a, uh, a distribution amount. It's not consistent with personal use. Well, if you think about it, it's likely that your jail, if they were booked into jail, asked them whether or not they were a substance abuse user. And if their answer to that question is no, that's very, very useful information for your uh, for your criminal prosecution. They're not, the jail is not going to read Miranda to the suspect in that particular case, right? In, in, in any case, right? The, in fact, the person who is asking these questions is probably not even a law enforcement officer. They're probably a jail medical officer of some kind. But the answer to that question is very useful information for you in your case. And you can use it, even if uh, the defendant never was read Miranda or invoked his right to an attorney or invoked his right to remain silent, uh, potentially because it is a routine booking question. So try to think outside the box on these uh, kinds of situations. Think about what your routine booking questions are. But at the same time, you always do want to remain focused on what's the Miranda rule tell me? What are the strictures of Miranda? Um, is this person in custody? Do, uh, am I going to interrogate them? And do I need to read them the Miranda warnings? 
once I've read them the Miranda warnings, be sensitive to, did they invoke their right to counsel? Did they make a statement that's reasonably indicating to me that a person that, that they want to have the assistance of counsel? Did they invoke their right to remain silent? Did they make a statement that would reasonably indicate to me that they're invoking their right to remain silent? They're putting up that white flag and saying, I'm invoking my constitutional right not to be questioned anymore. You always want to be focused on that in any situation uh, where you're dealing with a person who's in custody or potentially custody. So for today, that's all we got. Uh, that's all from me. That's all from Big E. If you like the podcast, tell your friends. If you don't like the podcast, don't tell your friends. Uh, but check us out. We're uh, Keep checking us out if you can. We're on SoundCloud. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Stitcher Podcast. If you've got another podcast that you want me to be on, a podcast network I'm going to be on, let me know. I'll try to get on there too, make it easier for you guys to listen. For today, though, that's all from Big E. Stay safe and don't get captured.